Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Lens. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, creator, and host of Behind the Lens, where every week we go behind the lens and below the line with directors, talent, screenwriters, composers, uh, you name it, talking about film, TV, and even stage screen, stage and music is and uh, music as well. So um, today, but every week. You can find me in print and online in the U.S. and abroad and always at BehindTheLensOnline.net. But it's Monday. It's 11 o'clock Pacific. It's 2 o'clock Eastern time. And we're right here on AdrenalineRadio.com. And hey, for those of you, you know, don't forget, you can also find the show, uh, the podcast of our live broadcast on iTunes, on Stitcher, obviously on BehindTheLensOnline.net on uh, IndiePopcorn.fm, and a few other places. I think Spreaker has us uh, as well. I'm not sure. We're in a bunch of different places. So check us out. And, of course, because our radio station owner, Nick Federoff, loves live stream, if you are listening and you want to watch on Facebook, you can go to the AdrenalineRadio.com Facebook page, and you can watch the live stream of this show. And if you do that, you will see all the really cool Han Solo merchandise that is hitting the stores now in anticipation of Solo, a Star Wars story, which is in theaters on the 25th. And embargo lifts tomorrow for reviews, but I can tell you, you're going to love it. It fits the Star Wars canon beautifully. And go see it because it is a hell of a lot of fun. Um, but. Very, very cool merchandising, I have to say. Um, they have Han Solo tote bags, Solo t-shirts. Um, of course, any true Han Solo fan will recognize Little Gold Dice, uh, which you will also recall played a very important part uh, in a key scene in The Last Jedi. Um, so get ready. Get your tickets now. And then uh, check, and then go look for the merchandise. And of course, don't forget the number one movie in the world, Avengers: Infinity War. It's still out there, and there's plenty of Infinity War merchandise out there as well. Uh, so, there. No, Disney does not pay me. They should for all the all the plugs I give them, though. <laughs> um, today we've got a great show. Today, uh, some guests that I'm really excited to talk to. Coming up at the quarter hour mark, we're going to have. Uh, writer, director, uh, director of photography, uh, editor Dominic Gill is going to be joining us along with, I do believe, co-writer and producer Nadia Gill and possibly the subject of the documentary coming to my senses, Aaron Baker. Um, I've, I've had so many different emails going back and forth. I'm not sure if all three are joining us or just two of them, but we're ready for them. And it's a really, it's a very empowering story. It's a fascinating story. It's Aaron's story. Uh, Aaron was injured in a motocross accident uh, almost two decades ago and was left a quadriplegic. This documentary, Coming to My Senses, is about his journey back and conquering the impossible to actually walk unassisted across Death Valley. Um, Dominic has done a beautiful job with the visuals. The story is extremely compelling. 
And Aaron is one of the most likable guys that you could ever hope to see on camera in a documentary. So we're going to talk to uh, Dominic and company at, at the quarter hour mark. The half hour mark, fascinating film. Some of, uh, it's called The Little Pink House. Uh, writer, director Courtney Ballacher will be with us along with producer Ted Ballacher. True story. Uh, but this is a narrative form of the true story. This actually, the story of the Little Pink House played out in the legal system. It started with a woman, uh, Suzette Kilo, who found a place she wanted to live, settled down, painted it pink, found a guy she was crazy about, married him, uh, and big business, Pfizer Company, wanted to come in and take over the land, and the city enacted uh, eminent domain. The case went all the way to the Supreme Court and when it did, it sent shell shock. It shell shocked the legal world, and every town in America and every homeowner, because it basically took away a lot of the protections that homeowners had when eminent domain is attempted to be exercised. Uh, this is Suzette's story. Uh, takes us all the way through the Supreme Court hearing. It stars Catherine Keener. I mean, it's exceedingly exceedingly well done but it's very very interesting and you get a sense of how long it takes the legal journey and the emotional journey you then are forced to endure when you embark on battling an issue like this with governmental entities the courts and all the way up to the supremes so i'm very anxious to talk to courtney <clears throat> about this one but right now we've got part of half uh, for time purposes, we've got half of our exclusive interview with Mark Rasso, uh, director of Kodachrome. Kodachrome is still out in limited release in theaters. It will be popping up on digital VOD. It may already be there. I'm not sure. Uh, it is actually the story of a photographer who is dying, only uses Kodachrome film, and there's only one lab left that processes Kodachrome film. And 2010 is when this went down. It it was anybody in photography or film or cinema was apoplectic over this. The shutting down of the last Kodachrome developing lab uh, in the country it became uh, the subject of an article and finally found its way into the hands of, of writer Jonathan Troper and then into the hands of director Mark Rasso as we tell the story of this photographer um, who is a real photographer uh, you've seen many of his photos in Nat Geo and in other places um, it's a man who's living in an analog world that is very rapidly going digital stars Ed Harris Jason Sudeikis Elizabeth Olsen Dennis Haysbert um, absolutely stunning film and it is beautiful and it is shot on film uh, but take a listen to my interview with Mark Rasso as we talk about Kodachrome. I have to congratulate you on a beautiful, beautiful film, visually and emotionally. This, this whole film, from start to finish, I love the inspiration for it. I was a huge fan of Kodachrome myself, so I died a thousand deaths in 2010. How did this project come to you? And then... 
because this is we've got the great allegory here but we can't get we cannot escape the fact that we are talking about Kodachrome a very visual medium with the truth that comes out in the true colors and the lighting which you and Alan just have exquisitely explored with your visual tonal bandwidth here so I'm curious how the film came to you and then how you and Alan then approached this cinematographically to design the film um sure so the film came to me i mean the script was sent to me um as a new father uh at my at the time my son was six months old and we had recently moved to los angeles for career reasons and kind of grappling with this uh, you know, your artwork versus family thing. So when I read the script, I instantaneously um, took to it and, you know, uh, happened to be reading it with my my son in my arms late at night, three in the morning after he wouldn't go back down to bed. So it just started crying <laughs> when I got to a certain scene in the film. Um, I kind of knew I had to do this film. And and that's, that's what brought me to it. And once I got on board, I really, I really kind of, you know, you try to find a spine in the film. You try to, you try to find um, themes that, you, that can carry you through. And, and it was this, this idea that both, you know, along with the, the death of film and the death of the Ben character, there was also like Matt character, Jason's character, was in this place where the music industry was moving from from um, basically from analog to digital. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, and kind of like what this means in society and this time period that we're going through. So that was that's what really drew me to the film as well, this idea of moving forward and how do we, you know, um, you know, Character-wise, it's like, I felt like, well, in order to move forward, we kind of have to let go of the past. But, you know, it's a perfect metaphor for, like, in terms of, of, of what we're, of, of photography and music and stuff, like, we don't want to let go of the past. We don't, we don't, you know, a lot of us don't want to let go of the past. We don't want to move forward. And do we have to do it? Do we, you know, it's, it's this dilemma we find ourselves in. Um, so that was really kind of the through line and what we wanted to focus on. And so visually, when me and Alan sat down, we a, a lot of our initial discussions were um, were based on reflection, like this reflective moment, um, and how we can how we can bring reflections into the film. You make I have um, to say, Mark, you and Alan make the greatest use of windows and mirrors for that very purpose of reflection and duality and two worlds existing within yeah. one and it is it is so exquisitely done so i applaud you on that oh thank you very much yeah that was one of the things we, we started off on also you know we had this idea to introduce all the characters um through a pane of glass so that's kind of how we we intro intro them all through this pane of glass so again like one to kind of uh, mimic the way Ben sees the world. Mm -hmm. You know, he, he has to put this thing in front of us, but also, you know, just to kind of show that nobody's, when, when we start this film, nobody, there's no clarity. 
uh, involved with these characters. They're all kind of struggling. They're all kind of obscured um, with where they are in their life. So, so these were like these visual themes. Those were the ones that we were able to carry through the film. Another one we we tried to do was to put you know um, Matt's character in um, in frames, mm-hmm. um, so to speak, in window frames and door frames, or at, at, at best, you know, as much as we could um, try to stay tight, almost like he's trapped in the photo himself mm-hmm. this whole film. So we, we stayed extremely tight on him. We really um, wanted to restrict him and, and put borders and frames on him, representing Ben's photography and what that does. And then allow allow that to um, open up at the end once they kind of connect we're, we're as wide as we ever are with him we we see more sky behind him we let him journey in the frame in these wider shots so that you know, something like that was a little bit uh, a little bit tricky to navigate um, and the, the final thing we we did which was you know the most complicated thing was we thought, um, and I might be going on a little bit of a tangent here, but hopefully this will all kind of I love together in some way. Mark, I love this tangent. Keep going. <laughs> okay. Um, we, um, we decided that we didn't want to have um, Matt and Ben alone in a kind of clean two-shot uh, until they've connected. So mm-hmm. we... We, we kept them separate, the whole film. Um, sometimes they're together in the same frame, but Lizzie's character would always be in it with them. Mm-hmm. With Yeah, with them. So it would be the three of them. Um, but just the two of them, we wanted to keep them separate to kind of visually put a stamp on this um, this idea that they're, they are so disconnected, you know. We, they're, they're so disconnected, we don't even want them in the same frame together. And it got tricky on us when we are shooting a lot of the car scenes because we ended up having it really tight, a little bit tighter than we might maybe wanted to be. Um, but once you kind of see through this vision, um, it goes. But then I, I really feel like it pays off once they are together at the end, once they're on this road trip and, and they're together in Kansas. And you see them together a lot for the for the last, you know, 15 minutes mm-hmm. of, the, of the film that bends in, you really get this sense that they've they've connected um and then and and i think it, it you know it's trying we're trying to work on a kind of uh, subliminal level here but we think that's something that pays off um so those are kind of the, the tools we use to attack you know it's, it's good to always have some sort of guidelines to 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 attack the film mm-hmm. um another another thing we did was we tried to replicate as much as they are separate and not seem to kind of together we also wanted to to shoot similar shots um to kind of convey this idea that they are father son they mm-hmm. have the same traits they are you know there is bloodline so there's we um oddly enough i mean we looked at tons of photography books we looked at tons and tons of photography books and tried to get inspiration but one place we found inspiration was from um a painter alex colville um, and cause he, you know, he has these really interesting shots and often people's faces are obscured and it's on their backs. And I we kind of like, really liked, you know, the subtext in the, in the painting. So we tried to, you know, 
have the shot of Matt looking out the window and then later replicate it later in the film of Ben looking out the window mm-hmm. and have, you know, push it on Matt's back and push it on, on Ben's back. And, and this kind of idea um, that these two characters, you know, connect them that way, connect them visually um, through, through these shots. So that's, that's kind of our, that was our big blueprint, overall blueprint for the film. Well, I have to tell you, your blueprint worked to a T. It is perfection. I mean, I love how you mentioned the frames because, you know, when we first see them together when they're going to embark on the road trip and Matt's sitting on the door on the stoop, what is what do we have there? We've got all these oversized old broken picture frames there. Uh, yeah. which I thought was a beautiful. I mean, I chuckled when I saw that because I think there would have I knew with the character of Ben seeing everything through a lens. Um, there would be a lot of framing, and you didn't disappoint me. I'm so happy you had a convertible, because I can just imagine as much difficulty as you had with getting shots, individual separate shots in the convertible, you would have died trying to do it in an enclosed car. (laughs) No, I know, I know, I know, it was a little bit, it was a little bit of a tricky one, uh, the car stuff is always... And that is just a bit of my interview with Mark Rasso on Coming to My Senses. If we have time later in today's show, you'll hear more of that. Uh, I'd say you'll hear more of it next week, but next week you're going to hear about Han Solo. So, um, but right now we have, you want to bring them live, Pam? We're going we're gonna to jump ship here and we're going to move over to our very special guest, Dominic Gill and Nadia Gill. Hi, guys. Hi, hey, how's how it going? are you today? It is going fine. How is it going with you? It's good. It's uh, a cloudy day here in Los Angeles, but that's a welcome change. You know, I like the cloudy days. I have to admit, I do like the cloudy days. Cloudy, but not rain if I'm driving on the freeway. Uh- <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, I have to congratulate you guys on this documentary coming to my senses. It is number one. Aaron Baker's story is so compelling and it is so fascinating that what sheer will and determination can do. But to see it unfold through the eye of your lens, Dominic, the visuals, that whole trek through Death Valley, your visuals and your editing it is, it is a feast for the eyes to watch your cinematography as this story unfolds. A really, really beautifully done. Thank you so much. You know, I'm, I'm curious, how did the two of you connect with Aaron uh, at the top of the show? I, I, you know, filled the listeners in. You know, he was involved in a motocross, motocross accident almost, almost two decades ago was a quadriplegic and has willed himself back to the point of being able to walk across 20 miles of Death Valley. Um, This is not the kind of story that just, this is the kind you have to either look for or luck just puts it in your lap. So I'm curious how it came to the two of you. Well, it's actually a little bit of both. And it has to do with, uh, a previous project that Dom and I were working on where we were going to take a specially designed tandem bicycle um, with several people with disabilities across the United States of America 
for a cycling adventure. Mm-hmm. And um, in looking for people to go on that adventure, we had been referred to Aaron Baker. And when we talked to him, he was already, you know, much further advanced in his recovery and his ability to actually pedal his own way across the state. He'd in fact done it twice. Um, and so even though he wasn't a good fit for that project, he, you know, he'd always been, he's, he's a really charismatic and supportive guy. And he basically came out to the departure for, our, uh, for our trip and rode us out of town and gave us pointers. And from then on, we kind of just stayed friends. And it was a couple of years later that Dominic turned to me and he said, you know, I've always been in love with Aaron's story and I'd really love to, um, you know, film some of it and put it out into the world for people to see. Well, I'm glad that you decided that you wanted to do that, Dom. Uh, <laughs> because this is, I, I spent a number of years working with a preeminent uh, attorney in the, dis, in the disabled community and her group, Ralph's Riders, uh, which is all spinal cord injury uh, patients. And mm. so I've seen firsthand what sheer will and determination can do and also the resilience that... As I've always said, you know, rather than these people, instead of being disabled, they are more able than most of us. And you telling Aaron's story just solidifies that uh, for me and proves it tenfold. But now how did you, you know, hooking up with Aaron, because developing your through line here, obviously you've got the 20-mile trek across Death Valley. But you've got to establish your through line leading up. You could have, you didn't want to, obviously, you didn't want to make it maudlin of, you know, a, a quad laying in a bed for the first part of the film. Right. But luckily, Aaron loved getting in front of the camera and shooting things his entire life. So you had a treasure trove of family home movies to insert. So how do you yeah. start breaking that down? And then well, interweave and intercut Death Valley because you go back and forth on the journey for us. Yeah, yeah. From the, from the get-go, I realized, well, I mean, this actually stems, it's interesting to say that this stems out of an initial thought of actually just making a short film about the desert crossing. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd made a, a, a five-minute short film about um, the sort of a 20,000-foot view of, of Aaron's uh, recovery and it had been very successful, actually, in, in film festivals. And that made me think I should, we should make something more. Um, at which point, the, the desert, the traverse of, of Death Valley came into our heads. And we shot it. And it actually, it, it didn't, it's not a normal way of, of sort of feature-length documentary planning, I think. But mm-hmm. um, shortly before going into post on that, we thought maybe we had a lot more to play with. Um, and the more we looked at, at, you know, his recovery story, the more we realized or the more I became set on, on doing a nonlinear um, structure so mm-hmm. that the desert walk was interspersed throughout. Because as you correctly point out, you know, having this chronological thing of Aaron's accident and then painstakingly slowly moving through and having essentially the, the sort of visual eye candy all in the last 20 minutes, people people might not get there. Right. Um, or as, as, as powerful as archive footage is, um, unless it's used judiciously, it can, it can wear on you. So, um, yeah, that's really how the structure came about. We thought it was a, a really good, uh, sometimes metaphorical uh, and sometimes not 
way to keep the film alive at certain stages. Well, and that's something that I really loved as you are cutting back and forth once we really, with the, the trek across Death Valley, is because we are constantly reminded, on the one hand, you've got these beautiful long shots, you know, widescreen, and we really can capture the desolation and the aloneness of this journey that Aaron is making. But we see him there walking step by step. Nobody's holding him up. Mm -hmm. He's walking. But then you cut back to various stages of either his pre-accident or post-accident with the various stages of recovery and in regaining his mobility. And you really, you keep us just, you just shake your head. And every time you go back to a desert shot, you're shaking your head. It's like, this is unbelievable. Um, and that's, mm-hmm. a, that's a very, very powerful thing to implant in someone's mind when they're watching something. Yeah, and, and I, I'm, I'm grateful that you recognize this kind of thing. Because certainly, I think, as you state, basically, the desert we, we chose, partly because of, of Aaron's ability meant that uh, walking on flat surfaces made things you know, almost possible as opposed to impossible. Um, so that was one reason we chose Death Valley. But maybe from a from a creative perspective, what better landscape is there to really polarize and focus the eye on mm-hmm. what is going on in that image? Um, as beautiful as the desert is, it's not distracting. It's actually focusing. Right. Oh, very much so. Because even though you've got the textures and the camera, you really, you capture the texture of the ground so that we really get an added sensory experience of what he is actually going through as he's trying to walk on the various textures. Mm. And that intrigued me watching that. Um, It really intrigued me to see that. You know, I'm curious, Nadia, because, you know, you were writing a lot of this, and when did the inter- the idea of interviews come into play with a couple of the doctors? Obviously, brilliant, brilliant, brilliant therapist at core. Um, and then, of course, Aaron's mother and ultimately his fiance. Um, how did the interviews come into play here? Well, I think when we first started making the film, we actually did the production first for the Death Valley Walk. Mm-hmm. And um, and then we started sorting through the archive footage. And uh, I think at some point we said to ourselves, like, who's holding the information that we need? You know, basically you decide what, what arg- argument are you prosecuting or what story are you telling? And you just start thinking, you know, who are the credible people who have the experience or the knowledge with which to... Um, you know, portray the events as they happened. And, you know, the obvious people, the the most obvious person was Aaron's mom and his dad and sister. And so we kind of started with the immediate family. Mm -hmm. And then we worked out a rung from there and went to his therapist who he'd spent the longest part of his his journey with. And then we we really had to chase down Aaron's neurosurgeon. Um, Aaron had two doctors and both were kind of hesitant to be put on camera. And you know, I feel for them because they, it's hard to, it's hard to look back. And one, it's been so many years, I'm sure their recollection is not that great. I mean, they, especially the neurosurgeon is somebody who works with Aaron for, you know, a week or two, uh, not years and years like a therapist. 
And also, he actually did his job. He re- obviously repaired Aaron's spine um, in the best possible way, which yeah. allowed for this process to take place. But at the same time, it's hard for them to possibly say, well, their projection was wrong, even if, even if they didn't do anything wrong. Mm-hmm. Like, it was just the ability you know, to, to not foresee what was possible. Right. And, um, and so from, you know, that we just kind of worked out in increments looking for, you know, the points that we were trying to make. And in the end, we actually had to go get another neurosurgeon to interview because we needed more context for the field <laughs> mm-hmm. outside of what had been happening to Aaron. We needed, you know, questions answered about, you know, why doctors do what they do, how often, you know, how long are they in the uh, rehab for traditionally and kind of these more, um, substantive uh, points that, you know, are factual. They don't change. And so we have to go find those as well. And and, uh, we just built out from there. Wow. You know, I have to say, Dr. Lee didn't look too happy to be on camera. Just an observation. (laughs) I I actually, I I think Dr. Lee just didn't uh, look too happy, generally. (laughs) Um, Not that he he wasn't happy. He just had one of those faces. (laughs) Oh, my. Because... Yeah, because I kept, I was getting the vibe listening to him that, you know, he wasn't that pleased. It it was almost as if he wasn't that pleased that his former patient was having such a miraculous recovery and making so much progress. Uh, You know, that's interesting that that talking, talking to Aaron about this, he, 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 Aaron said that um, as soon as he was able, um, a, a year, a little over a year after the injury, he actually um, made a point of walking into Dr. Lee's uh, <laughs> office, and he said that Dr. Lee was really happy. Um, but he is one of those people that you know doesn't necessarily overflow with you know the the uh, it doesn't manifest in his face necessarily. Um, but also, I think it, it's an important uh, thing to say that. Sometimes the people with the most knowledge are not good communicators. Right. Um, and in in the art of documentary filmmaking, it's it's uh, definitely a, a fine balance between finding the person who who was actually you know executing whatever it was, or finding someone that knows a lot about that field and is 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 more uh, you know magnetic a personality, maybe a better communicator, maybe just just a, a more someone that everyone can relate to a little bit better. And in, in Dr. Lee's case, that was certainly why we, why, why we brought on the second neurosurgeon. Mm-hmm. You know, um, how long was your editing process? Once you sat down, once you, you, know, you figured out you needed these interviews and the approach that you were going to take, how long was your editing process? Did you, were you editing you know, bits and pieces as you were accumulating them, or did you wait until you had everything you had all the moving parts and then started assembling. Oh, we definitely started, you know, every time we got new footage, we would filter through it and see what we wanted to keep from it and how it would fit in. But in truth, we probably went through three or four one month editing stints um, where we blocked off a month of our time to sit down and work exclusively on the project during that month. Mm-hmm. And that was spaced out over a period of three years. And then, and I think in the end, we did another two months to, close to the finish line. And the reason behind that is just, and I think this is the way most documentary filmmaking ends up working. Um, you know, we wish we could block off four or five months of our lives to work on the project, especially because Aaron's project is the type of project that if you have the time, you can go get all the, the moving pieces. You don't actually need to wait 
you know, four or five years for the story to develop. But um, but we didn't have the funds. And so, you know, we just we went about we make a lot of branded content in the action sports world. And we went about doing the jobs that would allow us to essentially take some of that money and put it into the Aaron Baker. Well, at the time it was called the Aaron Baker Project. Mm-hmm. Um, and and but it, so I think the answer to your question is maybe there was a total of five five months worth of editing and post production done on the project that spaced out over the course of three years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, a, you... a lot of that was uh, actually uh, changing the the structure. Deciding it didn't work, changing it again, and and then getting actually a, a second editor with a good fresh pair of eyes that really had a, a good understanding of dynamic story structure to to take a a nearly finished uh, piece of work and do that last five or ten percent uh, that that we were at that stage probably unable to do creatively. Mm-hmm. So you know you brought up a good point, Nadi. You mentioned funding. Um, which is always, especially in the independent film world, is always a challenge, more so with documentaries, and even more so when you get into these very personal documentaries. You know, how challenging was it to get the funding? And you already mentioned that you were taking, you know, your own work projects that would allow you to then funnel some money into this. Yeah, so our main, we had two main funding sources for the first, I guess three, if you consider deferred payments, two main funding sources other than that. Um, one was Kickstarter, mm-hmm. and uh, we ran a Kickstarter campaign about three years ago, which brought in about $60,000, which we were able to use towards the film. And and the other part of the film was self-financed by us, and that was a risk. But um, we operate a little differently because we're a production company rather than just freelance you know, director, producer, Mm -hmm. and that is, um, we often look at projects that are meant to be self-financed and then we're meant to make back our money later. And, um, as this was our first feature film, that was a big risk because we didn't have any experience in, um, in the marketplace. And, you know, our Rolodex wasn't very thick in terms of like people were able to call Mm -hmm. to purchase the film or find a distributor or, you know, just get the partnerships in place that you need to successfully launch a film. But we still managed, and we were tenacious, and bit by bit, we did find those partners, and we're very lucky, and, you know, to say that, you know, our, we didn't, we, we certainly aren't, we didn't make a lot of money off of it, but we were able to recover the fun money that we put into it, and so for us, it's a big win in, in terms of, like, getting to launch our first feature film and not coming up in the hole with credit card debt and whatnot for it. Oh, not in the hole with credit card debt. I th- I don't think I've ever heard a filmmaker say that. Okay, um, this could be a monumental moment <laughs> for the two of you. It is an inspiration to f- indie filmmakers everywhere. Oh my God! Well, yeah, yeah you, it's hard though because like the, there's a bottleneck in the funding. You you touched on the idea that you know it's easier to get funding from granting bodies or foundations if it's a social issue doc. Mm-hmm. And even though we, you know, in certain ways are presenting a social issue, particularly in regards to the lack of available resources and, and care for people looking to recover from injury, it's so it's too biographical in nature for it to be considered a social issue. Yeah. And so we were definitely blocked out of the um, of the institutional funding bodies. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there's always another, I shouldn't say there's always, there's often another way. And I think we just kept pursuing that and believing in the project and believing that people needed to hear uh the message and and that in the end we would we would find a solution to the funding problem 
Well, I'm so glad you did. You know, unfortunately, we're all out of time, and I got to move on to my next guest, who are all who also they've done a narrative based on a very you know important legal case in went to the Supreme Court. I mean, you know, I just I love talking to you filmmakers who who do tackle these tougher issues, be it in narrative, be it in documentary. And, you know, here, telling Aaron's story, it is so inspiring for everyone. And with Mother's Day just having been yesterday, I can't think of a better film for uh, a mother and a son or mother and a daughter to go see together because I truly don't think Aaron would be where he is without his mom. Yeah, a really uh, incredible formidable person who uh who you know was the the mainstay in his support network and has been for his entire life oh, guys thank you so much i hope you'll come back on the show again i want to see more from you i want to hear more from you i mean this this has been a, a real joy having you talking about coming to my senses yeah thanks for having us on it's a pleasure and um hopefully we'll have another film soon that we can come and talk about yay Thanks, guys. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thanks. Take care. Have a good one. And that was Dominic Gill and Nadia Gill talking, coming to my senses. And now they they have been very patiently, patiently waiting. The wonderful Courtney Balaker and Ted Balaker are now on hand to talk about Little Pink House. Hi, guys. Are you there? We are. How are you doing? Thanks for having us. Oh, my God. I am so excited to have the two of you on talking about this. I am very familiar with the Kelo lawsuit uh, and, you know, going all the way up to the Supremes. Um, I spent 27 years in law. uh, And when Kelo hit, that sent shockwaves through the entire legal community. Um, so to see this now in a narrative form with the benefit now, because some years have passed since this whole incident occurred, uh, and went to the Supremes. And as you very nicely point out in your little epilogues, uh, with the end titles, you know, a lot of laws have been changed because of what happened with the Kilo case and the Supremes taking away so many of the rights of individual homeowners in these eminent domain situations. Um, how did this film find its way to the, how did this story find its way to the two of you? Well, um, Ted and, and I, we started our own production company about seven years ago called Corchula Productions. And our motto is making important ideas entertaining. And it was brought to our attention that a book was written about the entire saga of mm-hmm called Little Pink House by Jeff Benedict. It's a brilliantly written book. Ted was very familiar with this case. He covered it when he was a um, producing news. I was not. I read the book, and I was completely floored and blown away that this happened. And I was just also completely inspired by Suzette Kilo, the woman who was at the center of, of this battle and put her name on the case and just what she did was so few people I, I don't think either would have done what she did, which is stand up to these incredibly powerful people, these bullies who wanted to kick her and her neighbors out of their homes so that they could hand the land over to a private developer. But she said no. 
Um, so Ted and I, we, we, we just, you know, we thought about it and we just said, this, this is a feature film and it's a narrative feature film. And so we went to meet her, made sure she liked us and was comfortable with how we wanted to make the movie. And then we set off to, uh, to put the whole thing together. Uh, it's, it's very well, and you wrote this, Courtney, very well put together in terms of, you know, dotting the I's, crossing the T's. And you very smartly, you don't lose the audience with the legal wranglings. Um, and you keep the timeline, we're very cognizant of the timeline. And in that regard, I love the pace of your editing. Because the pacing, it's oh. it's very deliberate. And it moves along. You don't vacillate with the with the pacing, which keeps us in the mm-hmm. mindset of actual litigation and how it proceeds and that okay you don't get it's not a snap decision it's not a snap this so we get to see Katherine mm-hmm. Keener as Suzette really methodically walking around her house painting picking little things up on the table all very deliberate mm-hmm. very methodical just like litigation. So that metaphor in there that comes through with the editing is absolutely fabulous. Oh, thank you so much. You know, how did, you know, how did you go about, was Suzette involved at all? Did she see the script? Um, I know she, I understand she wasn't on set while you were filming, but I'm curious, did she see the script? Did you get her blessing of the script before you went into production? We asked if she wanted to read it. Uh, we invited her to be a part of that uh, part of the process, and she declined. And I, I, I think I understand why. Yeah. I mean, first of all, she lived through this. Secondly, a book was written about it, so she kind of had to relive it through the writing mm-hmm. of the book. And, and I, I think that, you know, for, she, she didn't want to be involved creatively for two reasons. One, she's never done anything like this. That's not her world. She's a nurse. She's, she describes herself, I'm just a regular person. And she didn't feel qualified or comfortable really weighing in creatively. And secondly, I just think, you know, it, she didn't really want to have to go through it in that way right. again. But we showed it to her privately. Ted and I met with her, showed it to her privately before she sat in the theater and watched it with, with a bunch of strangers. <laughs> and luckily, she's really, really happy with the film. Now she's become a huge partner in, in helping us promote the film, do Q&As, um, you know, just keep the movement moving forward uh, so that we can bring awareness and, and prevent things like this from happening again. Mm-hmm. How difficult was it? That's, that's been one... No, go ahead, Ted. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to say that's been one of the, the really gratifying parts of the, uh, the process is we've become very close with Suzette and her family, and it's, it's really nice to see someone who is very introverted by nature, as is Suzette, and as Courtney mentioned, she wasn't looking to be uh, in the spotlight, um, but she sees this as an opportunity to turn really the tenure ordeal that she and her neighbors went through into something really positive. And you mentioned at the outset, Debbie, that a bunch of laws were changed after the awful Kilo decision. And it's roughly two dozen states um, have really good laws, but that also leaves two dozen more that uh, <laughs> that don't. And yeah. so we say that the movie, it's not just a movie, it's a movement. Mm-hmm. And what we're aiming to do is to finish the job that Suzette and her neighbors uh, started in 2005. Yeah, it's a shame that uh, more people don't understand about eminent domain and 
what can happen to you until it actually happens to you. Um, which is something that I really love that you did this as a narrative, because as you know, it's a lot easier to get butts into the seats for a narrative film than with most documentaries. So I think, you know, very, very wisely, you've got a much bigger audience pool to begin with here, uh, by going with a narrative telling of this story. And it is still just as timely now as it was back in 1999 when it all began. And that's that's a sad commentary on our on our uh, on our country and our legal system, but uh, that is the fact of the matter. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think you're exactly right, and and it's a eminent domain abuse is a really strange term. Um, it doesn't really roll off the <laughs> the tongue very no. easily, but uh, a lot of people may not have heard about it. But it it, it really affects vastly more people than than a lot of people realize, yeah. and we've seen that and enjoy. We've been to so many screenings now where people across the nation have said, this has happened to my house, this happened to my family farm, this happened to our small business. Um, And so it's one of those things that because it usually strikes people who tend to be poor, um, they they have a hard time getting publicity for it. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot more people out there uh, than you'll see on the the major uh, media outlets. So it it happens vastly more than I think the typical American is aware of it happening. You know, I'm curious, your casting is impeccable here. Um, Catherine Keener, she is, you just watch her. You are riveted to her, even when she is just sitting. And you mentioned the fact that Suzette, very introverted. Catherine really, really brings that to the forefront. We really feel the introversion, the shyness of Suzette. So um, what led you to Catherine? And then, you know, and working with her in bringing this story to life. Well, she's always been one of our favorite actresses. <laughs> I mean, she's just phenomenal in everything she does. And she's a true artist. I mean, she really takes the craft seriously. I mean, it, it, it's not... And she's, she's very much a curator of her career. She only chooses projects that really make sense to her mm-hmm. and touch her in a unique way. So, you know... Our casting director said, well, let's try for her. And I thought, well, we're never going to get Catherine Keener. <laughs> but we, she, she read the script, and she really responded to the material. And then she and I got on the phone for about an hour. I, I'd never met her before, and we talked. And the thing that struck her so much was just this sense of when you find your spot, when you find your home and root yourself there and the importance of that. And, and if someone were to uproot you, just how devastating and, and quite frankly evil that is to do to somebody when they found their place. And mm-hmm. so that really resonated with her. And then in regard to just, you know, the shyness that you just mentioned about Suzette, I mean, she really is a truly humble person. And as Ted was just saying, she wasn't looking for attention. She didn't want to be the face of anything. You, you see the, the, the scene depicted in the film where, her lawyers literally have to talk her into yeah. doing it. And and she did it because she knew it was the right thing to do. And Catherine just really admired, you know, just sort of the, the humility and somewhat of a stoicism to this woman. And she really connected with that. And, you know, they never met before filming the, 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 the movie. We tried to make it happen, and logistically it didn't work out. Um, 
So a lot of people are pretty blown away that for a woman she never met, she just really got wow. her and understood her in a, in a really profound way. Well, you know, and then you surround Catherine with Jean Triplehorn is she is delicious as Dr. Wells. Oh, um, she so is so. she is delicious in that role. You could tell she really, you know, out come the claws and she dug into that. Uh, similarly, you know, Callum Keith Rennie is j- perfect counterpart mm-hmm. to Catherine Keener and Colin Cunningham. Other side of the coin, which makes him as Billy the perfect, perfect, you know, play, you know, legal playmate with Suzette Kilo. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, just fabulous. You know, was it as easy to get everybody else as it was um, having Catherine come on? Well, once Catherine was on board, I mean, you know, actors want to work with Catherine Keener <laughs> because she's got a tremendous reputation as an artist. And um, so, yeah, I mean, it, you know, casting the other roles became much easier once she was on board. And um, and Jean Triplehorn, who was just an absolute delight to work with. I mean, a lovely human being, um, woman. She, you know, we, we really thought it was important that the role, it, 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 it wasn't depicted as just this black and white character, like a woman who, you know, maybe had the right intentions at the beginning of it, but then just went down this very wrong and dark path. Um, That, that, you know, not the mustache twirling villain in in the shadows, but rather somebody that used humor and charm and, and this idea of, but I'm making the world a better place. Trust me. Um, mm-hmm. And that was really fascinating to Jean, just the complexity of, of that person and that role. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, it's, I mean, it really, and that's one of the great things is she's not clear, she's not a cookie cutter villain. There is all that mm-hmm. complexity and nuance that Jean brings to the role. So on the one hand, you think, okay, maybe she really does believe. But on the other hand, you're watching what's going on and you're like, she's just out for blood. So the ambiguity mm-hmm. that she brings is it's a wonderful character study to watch her play Dr. Wells. Really interesting. And again, and, and you know, the guys you have brought in, Colin Cunningham is just, you know, the dumpster diving was great. I got to tell you, the, the dumpster <laughs> diving in the rain was great. That that really just he is so, set the he's, tone. He's a friend of ours. <laughs> I I love him. I love that guy. I mean, he, he, he's up for anything, Colin Cunningham, and he can do just about everything. So <laughs> I'm I'm so glad you enjoyed him. Oh my god, he was great. But you know, I've got to ask you about you know your cinematographer Alex Lehman. I know Alex has done a lot of TV. You know, as a camera operator, I. Loved his work on Piranha 3 Double D. I kid you not, I have seen it. Ah. Um, All right. That's awesome. So so to actually see him now do a film like this, wow, that was really refreshing, I got to tell you, because he's very good. He's much better than a lot of, than some of the projects, you know, in their finished state, you know, he doesn't, oh, he, yeah. he doesn't get yeah, the credit. I mean, he, he really cut his teeth on, on some of those, you know, horror. I mean, actually, that's actually how I met Alex. I used to be a producer on, not Piranha 3DD, but on uh, 
some other films that that production company mm-hmm. made. Um, I mean, I met he when he was just a, a camera operator, um, and it's just been really wonderful to see his career just completely explode and go through the roof. But um, no, I, I think he's tremendously talented. You know, I'm curious, what was, you know, what were the considerations that you and Alex had in developing your visual tonal bandwidth? Because this is a film, it's, it's heavy subject matter. Uh, and mm-hmm. with a dark theme, you know, litigation theme running underneath it, you know, but you keep the film visually light, except for, mm-hmm. you know, when we're in the governor's office or if we're seeing Dr. Wells in some of in, in limos or in other areas. And then it gets a little bit darker. So you're almost subliminally you know, letting us know these are not really good, good people. Um, I thought that was really Mm -hmm. interesting. But otherwise, you keep everything very light. You really capitalize on having that beautiful waterfront, that river there that was so peaceful. Mm -hmm. And, of course, the beautiful shade of the pink house. Um, And the way that you have it lit with sunlight so that it always looks... It's like it's, you know, it's like a sparkling jewel amidst, you know, what's happening around. So I'm really curious what the, how the two of you came up with this, you know, very beautiful look. Well, well thank you. Um, it was really important to Alex and, and me to make sure that the home represented the, the oasis, the, the peace. The, like, this, this was the place where she wanted to be at the end of her long day and look out at the water. And, and so anytime we shot the house, we wanted it to feel warm and lived mm-hmm. in and solid. Um, and we also wanted to really showcase the difference of these two worlds that were colliding. You know, you had Suzette and the Fort Trumbull neighborhood and this, you know, very blue collar working class, reality in juxtaposition with the power brokers and they were just living in two completely different worlds and we, we wanted people to feel that like not feel like you're watching two completely different movies but rather anytime we're with the governor or we're with charlotte or we're, you know we're with the, the the power brokers or the heavy hitters it's a different feel than when we're with suzette in her living room having those fort trumbull neighborhood meetings mm-hmm. or um you know, just just her, the weight of this, of the reality, of what's happening in her life, just crushing down on her, and and so, you know, it was it was the first time Alex and I had worked together in this capacity. I had mm-hmm. produced movies he had been um, a cinematographer on. It was so fun to like really just be able to become creative partners on the look and the feel of of the film, and um, and you know we. You know, we had a lot of options in terms of how we wanted to do it, but we also wanted the, the, fil- the film to feel natural. We mm-hmm. didn't want to do anything terribly stylized that kind of took people out of the film. Like you say, I mean, it's, it's a tricky piece because there's so much legal e- legalese and litigation mm-hmm. and peace. Pe- so, so easy for people's eyes to glaze over when watching court proceedings. And so any opportunity we had to make something visually interesting or, you know, make a point visually as opposed to using dialogue or language, we really tried to, you know, take advantage of those mm-hmm. opportunities. And and I have to say, some of the interiors in Suzette's house where you have the sunlight 
the you know that that tiny little fibrous the way sun is when it comes through the curtains in an afternoon you really capture that beautifully in the living room interior oh, uh, of Suzette's house that really and it just softens everything and it really carries through with the character of Suzette as being you know a softer person but then we see the real toughness underneath that come out as the as the film progresses I mean all these little touches that you did right down to your costuming um, keeping Catherine Keener in, in the sweaters the looser fitting clothes the casual comfortable comfortable in her own skin as opposed to Jean Triplehorn who is in the very very fitted suits with the peplum jackets and you know the power brokers in their gray suits and navy suits beautiful contrast all the way through every little detail you know i don't know how much ted had had to do with any of that other than just sit there and say that's right that's right that's right um you know you know well a lot of that is just taking off uh you know suzette is not a she's a what you see what you is what you get kind of woman she doesn't wear makeup she dresses you know like Catherine was depicted in the film mm-hmm. uh and same with dr charlotte wells uh so the 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 um the distinctness between the two women who in some ways are very similar in that mm-hmm. they're very strong women but in other ways are very different because they come from vastly different worlds that was uh, um and it's very gratifying to, to to hear you point that out because um that's that's precisely how these women were in in real life and so it was very important to you know to Courtney and to me and to Alex and uh Catherine and Jean to depict uh, as much as possible as as it actually happened and it it really was this this clash between two worlds Courtney and I often call them the insiders versus outsiders and, mm-hmm. and so that's those are the two different worlds you see depicted in in the lighting and the dress and the style of speech and and just kind of the the power that they're able to um, project onto this community. So now the two of you create an interesting dynamic here, working together on this film. Courtney, writer, director, Ted, you're producing. How was how did this collaboration work, and who had the final word? <laughs> well, uh, Ted, do you want to say that you want to tell her that you had the final word? Oh, we know that's what Ted wants to say. <laughs> do we know that? Well, given it's, uh, it was well, just Mother's Day, I better step step back from this one. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it's a great question because it's always you're you're kind of rolling the dice when you work with your uh, partner in life, right? But uh, T- Ted and I, have, we've always collaborated really well and and we used to work for and produce for other people for a number of years and then we just started feeling um you know the just the the pull to want to make stuff that we're really really passionate about and luckily we see eye to eye on in terms of taste and content um i mean i i you know ted is just he he's he, he was so familiar with the case and his his bat his journalism background was just you know so important and 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 he helped me uh, with scenes that were really complicated and, mm-hmm. and, you know, you didn't want to, want to go too d- far down the rabbit hole with, with the concepts and ideas that the film is dealing with. And so he was really helpful to me when I was crafting the script to come up with really efficient ways 
of explaining things that were really long and complicated. Um, so, yeah, in terms of just our company, if there's ever a narrative project, I, I'm the director of it because that's, that's my background. And if we do a documentary, uh, and he produces, and if we do a documentary, I produce and Ted directs. And uh-huh. so we, we, just, we just delegate based on what our strengths are. Okay, so who's, who's done the most directing, Ted or Courtney? <laughs> well, it's really on the basis of, of uh, yeah, I, I would say in general, <laughs> Courtney directing the films and uh, among other things. Um, but um, yeah, as you mentioned, if it's if it's documentary, then then um, I direct, and if it's if it's narrative, she directs. Although there's a lot of cross pollination, sure. Um, um, and so that I think that makes our our documentaries better, and it makes our narratives better too. Um, and so it's yeah it's you know we've done a lot of difficult things together from from uh working in network news she was in uh directing off broadway theater we moved cross country we started a, a business in the middle of the great recession uh we we make films together so this was just another we're we're, we're used to doing difficult things together and and so um it's a sort of normal for us <laughs> well unfortunately guys we are all out of time for the whole show today I I am so thrilled that you that I could have you on the show. I hope you'll both come back again. I know you've always got stuff in the works. So I definitely want to see you both come back on the show, if you will. Oh, we'd love to. Of Thanks course, for having us. we would love to. You you are fantastic. <laughs> this has just been such a great experience. Thank you for having us. Oh, my pleasure. So now where can everybody see little, the Little Pink House? Well, you can go to uh, watch.littlepinkhousemovie.com. Mm-hmm. That's watch.littlepinkhousemovie.com or just simply littlepinkhousemovie.com. Um, you can see the trailer. You can see where we're going to be up next. And you can actually find out how you can bring Little Pink House to your hometown theater. We've set up a way for fans to do just that, and they're doing it all the way from Omaha to Anchorage to Hawaii to Florida. Wow. So, um LittlePinkHouseMovie.com. Yes, and, you know, all the small-town listeners out there, I can't recommend it highly enough. Um, it might inspire you to, you know, go talk to your own legislators and attorneys and see what you can get done in your towns that are not protected, um, where the homeowner is not protected, much like what happened with Suzette and the rest of the residents in Fort Trumbull. Guys, thank you again so, so much. And I can't wait to talk to you both again. Well, thank you so much. Likewise, we can't wait thank to you. Get back on. Thanks, guys. Take care. Bye bye. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye. And that was Courtney Balaker and Ted Balaker talking the Little Pink House. That is all the time we have today. So, next week, it's all about Book Club and Han Solo. So until next week, I'm Debbie Elias. This is Behind the Lens.